So let me go off on a tangent really quick. Um, what's your favorite thing to drink? Coffee. You, you coffee people. It's like no hesitation. It's an obsession with coffee, right? Some, some of you, it's going to be coffee. For me, it's tea. Um, for some of you, it's sports drinks. For some of you, it's soda. Um, what, what's the thing, though, that you drink when you got to quench your thirst, when you're super, super thirsty, super, super dehydrated? Typically water, right? And, and what's the thing, what's the main ingredient in virtually everything that we drink? Water. We all know that. Our body's made up of water. We, we have to have water. And I, and I think some of you drink water all the time. That's the main thing that you drink, this thing you're drinking right now. And I bet there's some of you that haven't had a glass of water in months. That shocks me. Those people are like, I, I don't know, I've had a glass of actual water in a, a year. But you, but you know, we all know it's the main ingredient of things that we drink. And we all know that we may like coffee, and coffee's great, and we might like soda, even though soda's a total horror show. Why are you drinking that trash, right? That, that, no, it's just killing you. No, uh, no, that's, uh, I shouldn't guilt people, right? Um, but it is. Soda's a total horror show on our bodies. But, but it's good, right? And so we drink it. But I think in the end, we all know that the thing that we, we need to survive is water. We can't survive more than three days without water or without something that we drink that the main ingredient is water. But I think most of us realize that we don't just need water to survive. We need water to be healthy. Pretty much that anybody goes on a, on, on a health kick, water's going to be a part of what they need. And so if you haven't been with us, and I know some of you haven't, we're in the book, The Gospel of John, written by one of Jesus' disciples. And today what we're going to see is that sometimes when the, Bob, when the Bible is talking about water, it's just talking about water, right? Just, it's just talking about water. But other times when the Bible is talking about water, it is an amazing metaphor with such depth, such beauty, such biblical richness that if we can fully grasp it and wrap our minds around it, it can't help but increase our faith, increase our hope in Christ, and increase our awe of our King and the scope of His plan for salvation throughout the ages. It's, it's actually really incredible if you dive down into it. And so today I want us to try to grasp that, to try to see that together. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to give, especially for those of you that haven't been here in a bit, bit or it's your first time, a little context to where we are in John. But I think reading the first few verses of our chapter today will help to build that context and then we'll build that out of that so you can follow along with us. So let's read one more time in John chapter 7 and verse 37. And we'll just read the first three verses in John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, that's the Feast of Booths, we'll talk about that in a second. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, that's capital S, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. When it says glorified, meaning gone to the cross, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, into his glory. So I just want you to see here that Jesus doesn't just teach. Right? We saw in other passages where Jesus would stand up and teach. Right? This is not him standing up and teaching. He's standing up and shouting this to the crowd. He is declaring this. Hey, listen, come to me and drink. For by believing in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Now we hear that and it sounds poetic and it sounds like a nice little metaphor, but to really, to really, if we really understand this, we'll understand that Jesus basically just dropped a bomb in the, in the middle of one of the biggest festivals that the Jewish people have. 
I mean, he just dropped a bomb. And so to understand that, to understand why that's kind of a bomb that he just dropped, we've got to understand two main things. The first thing we've got to understand is what I already talked about, the theme of water that runs all the way through the Bible from the beginning all the way to now. And then we really got to understand the importance of the Feast of Booths and most importantly, this day, this important day that it's talking about. So let's talk about the first one, water. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. But um, water from the very beginning was connected to this theme that runs through the, Bi- the Bible of water being connected to new life. So in, in Genesis, like at, literally at the very beginning in Genesis, the Holy, Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's presence was floating over the what? The waters, right? And then right after the Holy Spirit floats over the waters, God speaks and what happens? Life. Right, creation comes into being. The Holy Spirit is there when all new life is being created as it hovers over the water. Then we can skip forward to Noah when the waters come, when when God said everyone's thoughts, everyone's thoughts are sinful all the time. And so to start over, what did God bring in? A lot of water, right? A lot of water. And then he started over, gave new life through Noah's family. And so you see this theme of new life that runs all the way through then to Moses. When Moses is with his people in the Exodus in Egypt and they get set free from slavery in, in, in Egypt. And so they're, they're set free, but then Pharaoh changes his mind and brings his army of chariots, right? He traps them and they're dead unless God does something. What does God do? He parts the water. He parts the Red Sea. They pass through the Red Sea to their salvation, to their new life in God. God says, you're now my people and you follow me. You're going to be something new in me. And he destroys Pharaoh's army by collapsing the water and their new life begins. And then they get out in the desert and they don't have enough to drink. There's not enough to drink out out in the desert where they're going. So what does God do? He has Moses strike a rock. And what happens? What comes out of the rock? Water. Right, And that seems just like it's water, and it is just water. But then we see in 1 Corinthians 10, if you're with us in our series at the beginning of the year, that Scripture says that that was Christ with them. As they struck the rock, it was really the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ with them and providing for them, bringing bringing water to give them and sustain their lives. And then that just keeps going. That theme of water and new life is pulled all the way through the New Testament by the prophets, like the prophet Isaiah. Seven, eight hundred years before Christ was born, Isaiah says things like, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He wasn't talking about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. He says that with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation, that in the scorched places God will make you a well-watered garden, and that from within you will be a spring of water. And then you have a prophet like Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a a prophecy. He gives us this vision of a river flowing from the temple. Remember, the temple is where God's presence dwelled on earth in the Old Testament. So there's a representation, a river flowing from God, flowing from God to his people, and it's a river that brings healing to God's people wherever it goes. There are, church, there are so many more of those. We could have just kept going and going. Prophecies, and what these prophecies are about are not literal water, Right? But they're all about this water that's going to come. And it's, we see it in Ezekiel and other places. This water represents God's spirit, God's healing, God's spirit being poured out as water is poured out on his people. And when his spirit is poured out, will come, come the people's salvation, will come their Messiah, will come the time when God's spirit will be with his people and they will find new life once again in, in him. All the way through the Old Testament. Then that brings us to Jesus in the New Testament. It brings us to the first moment, to the first person Jesus declares himself to. Who was that? The Samaritan woman. Remember Jewish people hated Samaritans? 
And not only was she Samaritan, but she was an outcast, ostracized from her own people by her sin. Culturally, a woman that Jesus should never have been talking to, even his disciples were like, hey, why are you talking to that woman? But what is... What does Jesus say to her in love in John 4, 14? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give, give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So whether this woman in this moment could see it when Jesus said that or not, Jesus basically was just summing up an entire theme of all of scripture, really bringing all of scripture together in one sentence when he talks about the spring of water, this time of the Holy Spirit, this time of salvation coming to the people. And then finally, we see it kind of come to fruition in scripture. We could say in Revelation, there's things about it, but really come to fruition with baptism, right? Baptism, that's representation of, of being saved by Jesus Christ, his spirit coming to live in us, creating the spring of life, springing up in us. And so when we get baptized, it's a representation of how we are saved through the water. Like the water, we come up out of the water, it represents us having new life in Christ because his spirit is now in us, because his spirit's been poured out in us. So all of this is a really big deal to understand because in this moment, at least some of this, at least maybe most of this for some of the people, they kind of understood what Jesus was doing when he stood up and declared what he declared. Because it also wasn't just this theme of water and God's spirit being poured out that was important in this moment. It was the day that it happened. And so if you, weren't, if you haven't been with us, Brandon and I have both talked about this the last few weeks, but the Feast of Booths was one of the biggest festivals, one of the biggest feasts that the Jews had. Top three. And this day in particular, what it's referring to is the last day of the Feast of Booths, which was the culmination of the whole thing, which was a really big deal. And so what the Feast of Booths represented, it really ties in with this theme of water because it, it was a celebration of God freeing his people in the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. But then it, it continued on that God protected and gave provision to his people during the 40 years in the desert, right? It's that God took care of them. So what they do is they literally set up these little huts and they live in these huts as a representation of God will provide. God will be with us. And so thousands of thousands of people came to the temple, came to Jerusalem for this celebration. Um, some people think it was actually the, the biggest, um, when it comes to the amount of people, it was the biggest day of the year for Jerusalem. This is the crowd that Jesus stood up in front of and declared this. Potentially thousands, maybe thousands and thousands of people. And if you remember, Jesus stood up halfway through this temple, this, or through this, this feast. This feast was seven days long. So about three or four days through, Jesus stood up and, and taught. And you remember, everybody was just absolutely astounded by him. They're like, how does this guy teach this way? He's not been educated like the rabbis. How is he doing this? How does he have such authority? But this is not what happened here. This is, Jesus is not standing up to teach. He stands up and he just shouts out and declares truth. But before we really grasp it, let's make sure we understand the last day of this festival. And Brandon talked about this last week, but let me recap it really quickly for you because it talks about the great day. The last day is where everything came, to, came together for this whole thing. So on that last day, what, the, what would happen is the high priest, this is the highest ranking religious figure in Jerusalem, in Israel. He would, he would take a, a golden flagon and he would go down to the pool of Siloam and we'd go and he would fill it up and then he would walk back up to the temple and the people would watch this. And they would follow him back up to the temple. And when he, the high priest got back to the temple with his pitcher of water, the, the temple choir would sing psalms and they would rejoice to the Lord singing these psalms as he walked in and then he would go around a silver bowl multiple times. 
And after he was done circling the silver bowl, he would pour out this water of this golden flagon into the silver bowl. And the people, the people around the temple would shout out, give thanks to the Lord. They were remembering all that God had done and all that God was promising. This whole moment with the high priest is the culmination of this feast because it did two things. One, it pointed back to Exodus like we talked about, right? To, to God's provision in the Sinai wilderness in the 40 years when they were there that God brought the bread of, the bread of heaven Right, the manna from heaven. Who else is called the bread of the, the the bread of life or the bread of heaven in the New Testament? Jesus Christ. So it's talking about it's celebrating the bread of heaven that God provided for them, and it also celebrates the water that came from the rock, which later Jesus Christ is called the rock. Right? It, it celebrated the water that God brought from the rock, and that He protected them and He provided for them in the time in the wilderness. So it looked back at that, and it was remembering and celebrating that. But this was also a time to look forward. The pouring of this water was a, was a moment they're looking forward also to a day when God would truly rescue his people, right? The Exodus was just pointing forward to something too, right? This is a pointing forward to a moment when God would truly rescue his people, the time when the Messiah would come and he would give them the true bread of life. He would be the true rock from them and then he would pour out through him, he would pour out God's spirit on all his people. As Ezekiel prophesied in the Old Testament, God's very own spirit would be poured out on his people, and the rescuer would bring them to true salvation. Church, you see in all this, this moment that Jesus stands up now and how big of a deal this would have been? This is the day. At this moment, and on this day, the most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he shouts out and he declares for all of Israel to hear. Listen, he was basically shouting out, I am the way. Through me, you know, the one that I've been saying that the Father sent, through me, the one who knows the will of the Father and reflects his character, through me, you can find this living water. He is declaring that through him, the time of the Messiah has come and God is about to pour out his spirit on his people if they just believe in him. And maybe not every Jewish person at this festival got that. Maybe not every person fully understood, but the whole festival was centered around this thing and he did it on the day when they pour out the water to represent all of this. Now you may not have solved, you may have not seen that on the first reading, right? But on the last day of the Feast of Booths, I think most of them would have understand exactly what just happened. So with many people despairing, disparaging Jesus, with the temple officers, with the temple guards, have already been commanded to arrest Jesus, with the religious leaders trying to kill Jesus. He stands up with all of that true. He stands up in front of all of them, maybe thousands of them, and shouts out, the living water has come and I am the way. Can you imagine that moment? Now, I actually want you to try to picture what, how awkward that would be for some people, how crazy that would be in the middle of this really important day, most holy of days. This is one of the most holy days they have in the representation. And Jesus stands up. Yeah, all this that's happening, this is about me, and I'm about to bring it. Can you, can you even imagine how shocked people would have been? They know that all the religious leaders are trying to arrest him, and he stands up in front of everyone and just declares something that they will absolutely hate. I, can't, I don't know if like everybody went silent and was like, what? Or if people started shouting at him immediately, kill him, arrest him, or if people started falling down worshiping in that moment. They don't tell us, but I just imagine that moment had to be crazy. And so in the end, I think the crowd was kind of dumbfounded by this and didn't really know what to do or how to respond but we get to see a little bit of how they responded in verse 40. Let's look at verse 40 in chapter 7 again. We'll read through verse 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, 
this really is the prophet, meaning the Old Testament prophet that Moses promised would come in Deuteronomy, like the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Church, I don't know if you felt this just reading this now or when Katie was reading it, but I felt like this passage was just the perfect representation of the human heart. I mean, just the perfect representation. I mean, even to this day, just what the human heart is right. Like, listen, the truth, it's Jesus, right? So the truth just got unequivocally declared. What he just said is absolute truth. Truth, by the way, that on the Feast of Booths in particular, you can see truth that God has been laying the groundwork for since the first day of creation, since the very beginning. Yet, even though it's absolutely true and God's been laying the groundwork for this for all, throughout all of the ages, some misunderstand it. Some just absolutely deny it, and some believe it. People saying, this is is the Christ, right? Some believed it. Some misunderstood, some denied, some believed. Here's the thing, church. I I know that many of you are intimidated to share the gospel, to talk about Jesus with people that you know need to hear about Jesus. Listen, I get that. I, I, I know that you may be even a little bit scared not just intimidated, but scared. You're afraid of failing. You're, you're afraid of, like, I think for a lot of people, it's just, not, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to know what to say. I know if, if you're honest, some of you are afraid what people are going to think of you or what they're going to say about you or what it might cost you. I mean, some of you talking about Jesus at your jobs, I'm not telling you to be unwise about it, right? Or just go around getting yourself in trouble on purpose. But some of you are worried about, like, what it might cost you in your job or in your life or with your family if you're consistently talking about Jesus, or maybe it's just that you're just, you're just scared of, of being rejected, that someone's going to reject what you're saying or even reject you, right? You don't want to be rejected by anyone. I get that. I mean, we all understand that, don't we? I think that's in all of us, or at least most of us. But I, I want you to think about this for a second. The Son of God, the Son of God just spoke absolute truth. Jesus, who is God himself, just basically summed up their entire longing for a Messiah and all that God has been promising them with the pouring out of his spirit and the coming of salvation. He basically just summed all that up on the most important day of the year in about two sentences. To a people that who, for the most part, would at least have been able to grasp it a little because they knew what the Feast of Booths was about. And what happened? When Jesus declared it, some misunderstood Some absolutely denied it, but some believed. If it was the plan of the Father that when Jesus declared the truth that not all would believe, maybe it's okay that you don't try to carry the weight around that you got to lead every single person to Christ and every time you share the gospel, you got to be 100% successful or even close to it. If it was the plan of the Father that Jesus himself would declare these things and not everyone would believe, maybe you can let go of trying to be perfect or always having the right answer or every time you share the gospel that someone's going to listen to you. Because in the end, what are we really fearing? What are we really fearing? 
Maybe we could give ourselves a break and just be faithful as Jesus Christ was faithful because that's what Christ came to do, right? Just to be faithful to the plan of the Father and share and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit and what the Father's plan was to do. And so that's what you do. You just share the gospel. You just be obedient. You just go make disciples and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit of God because you don't save anybody anyway. God does. And listen, I just always want to be honest. Like, I know it's not always that simple, right? It's not always just as simple. It's like, just be faithful and go share Jesus and everything's going to work out. I know that people have legitimate problems, legitimate objections to Christianity. And if they're not a believer, they, they, listen, they are legitimate things. If people say, I can't worship a God that allows suffering. Listen, that is a good question. That's a good concern because suffering is hard and it is hard to understand. We should never look at someone who has a legitimate question about Christianity or doubts or concerns and, and blow them off like it doesn't matter. The people do have legitimate concerns and they're numerous. But church, what if you just learn to share the gospel with people in your own way? You, listen, for, for any of you that have been around Freshwater for any amount of time, you absolutely know what the gospel is. It is not complicated. Now, maybe presenting it in a preaching form is complicated, but you know what Jesus Christ has done for you and why you needed it, don't you? You know that you were lost to your sin. You know that if, if God truly does hold people accountable for their sin, even though he does love the world, but he also loves the world by holding them accountable for sin because he hates sin. He hates what it does to his world. He hates what it does for us. So if God really is a God that, that is against sin and holds us accountable for sin, we all know we're in trouble, right? But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the thing that you can communicate to other people. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for you because he lived the life that you should have lived. He lived the perfect life that I should have lived, that you should have lived. So he could go to the cross and die for us because his perfection paid for our sin. We give him our sin and he gives us his perfection. That's the beautiful exchange of the gospel. So it's no longer about your failure. It's no longer about your sin. It's no longer about your shame because Jesus came to cover sin and shame so that you could be made new in Jesus Christ. You know that's true. You know, if you've been coming to this church, that, that you died with Christ when you believe you died with him, that old sinful person filled with shame and regret and knows that you're guilty, died with Jesus Christ, and as he was resurrected, you were raised to something new by the pouring of the Holy Spirit into your heart. Do you think you can't communicate that to someone? Do you think you can't walk through that with someone who's struggling and doesn't really understand and needs hope? Because in the end, there will be people that have objections. There will be people that will want to reject it. There will be people that don't want to listen. But you just plant the seeds. But listen, there will be, if you're faithful enough to keep talking to Jesus about the hope that you find in him, there will be some that will listen. There will be some that will want to hear and so even if people have objections, you just say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I do know. And you just bring it back to what you do know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's what saves, not because you have the perfect answer to why they're suffering in the world. Try to know that answer. Seek it out if they ask. But in the end, it comes down to this. And even if you share it, even if you get awesome at sharing the gospel, I don't know, in, in humility, if you could possibly say you're awesome at sharing the gospel. But even if you got awesome at sharing the gospel in humility, you wouldn't say that. Some are going to mis, misunderstand. And some are going to absolute outright reject it. But more than anything, I think what you're going to find is people will make excuses for why they can't or why they won't believe it. Because people want to be their own gods. 
Did, did you not see that in the text? This is why I say it's the perfect reflection of human hearts. Some people just didn't believe and they want Jesus arrested. But some said, well, it couldn't be Jesus. He, he comes from Galilee. He didn't come from Bethlehem. And he's got to come from Bethlehem if he's going to be from the line of David. So he can't possibly be the Messiah. Do, do you, how long do you think it would take them to find out where Jesus was born? If Jesus was willing to answer the question, which you never know, right? But if Jesus was willing to answer the question, how long do you think it really find them to their objection for them to find out where Jesus Christ was born, to find out he was born in Bethlehem and he did come from the line of David? No one is asking him those questions, are they? Do you know why? Because they don't really want to believe. They want their excuses to be who they want to be. And that's what you're going to find when you share the gospel. It's not that people can't understand it or won't understand it. They don't want to submit their life to Jesus Christ. Because that, that means they can't, their life is no longer their own. They, they have to give up their sin. They have to give up their way to chase the king. And by the way, doesn't that make sense? Like, are, again, are we going to hold it against people who don't believe that they want their life to be their own? Don't we all war with that all the time? That my life will be my own and not the Lord's? And we re, that's what repentance is. We realize I'm doing it my way, not God's way. So I need to repent and turn my life to his way once again. As Christians, we have to do that all the time, don't we? Why would we ever hold that against somebody else who doesn't know Jesus Christ that wants to hold on to their own life? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. People will always be looking for excuses not to submit their life to Jesus Christ. That's why you share it patiently and lovingly and gently. And listen, boldly. You know, you can be bold and gentle at the same time. You can be bold and gentle at the same time. People need to hear this. Because here's the reality. People will always have excuses why not to believe. And hear me, you'll always have excuses why not to be obedient to God. And to be obedient to God, it says that we are to share the gospel. Really what it says is to go and make disciples. That's who we're meant to be. That's what we are called to do. We're called to do a lot of things. But that's one of the things we are called to do. It's who we are to faithfully share the gospel. And church, if you do, some will believe. What if we carried that back to our workplaces, to our families, to our circles? What if that's what we carried with us into Williams Elementary in a Tom Watkins neighborhood as we do that as a family? If we do it faithfully, some will believe, church. I was just talking to one of my pastor's friends the other day, and man, they're just sharing the gospel faithfully, and a guy just gave his life. He's been sharing the gospel with him for 40 years, and he just gave his life to Christ. And he can't walk anymore, so it took him a long time to baptize him. They had to figure out a way to get him baptized because he's handicapped now. They got him, and they baptized him, and then his 42-year-old granddaughter at his baptism, when they shared the gospel, gave her life to Christ. And then all the kids started asking questions about Jesus. We never give up. We never stop. You never give up on your family members and friends, and we never give up on the dark places God's called us to go because some will believe. So why the people are debating who Jesus Christ is, because that's what happened. This big debate started on who Jesus really is. You notice that he still wasn't being arrested. The temple guards, the temple officers, who have been all week, even before this week of Feast of Booth started, have been ordered to arrest Jesus. But when he was teaching earlier in the week, they didn't arrest him. And now he's declaring this in front of everyone on the most important holy day of the year. And what do they not do? Arrest him. Why? Well, first and foremost, I saw Maggie whisper it, at least, it's not his time. That, that's, that's the reason, right? God had said it's not his time. God had declared, he had ordained that it wasn't his time yet. But that's true. That's the absolute truth. But we also get a very practical reason 
for why they didn't arrest him. Did you see it in the other verses when Katie read? Look again in verse 45. We get the practical reasons why they're not doing what they've been ordered to do by the most powerful people in Israel. Verse 45 says this, the officers, this is talking about the temple guards, the officers then came to the chief priests, again, chief priests, most powerful people in Israel, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man, exclamation point. Like, they're like, no one's ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But, but this crowd, he's talking about the Jewish people, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Whoosh. So, I just want you to understand these temple guards, these temple officers were not like police officers. I think Brandon said something about this last week. Like these were biblically educated men. They were from the family of Levi. The family of Levi is the family that the priests come from. So these guys are well-informed. These guys know their business and why they're out there to do it. But these guys who um, are probably from the family of Levi or have been ordered by the most powerful people in Israel to go arrest Jesus and they don't do it. Why? Well, first, because God had ordained it, right? Because God declared that it would be this way. But more practically, let me just kind of restate what they said to the chief priests. Are you kidding me? No one that has ever lived has ever spoken like this guy. In the Greek, when it says no man, it means no human being. It represents all of humanity. No one in all of humanity has ever spoke like this man. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? This is the thing that they do. They listen to these guys, but they said, are you kidding me? No one's ever spoke like this guy. So in a real subtle way, they're saying to the religious leaders, are, are you sure this guy's not the Messiah? Or at least not some really important prophet? Are, are you sure? Last week, I texted Brandon this week because I just love the quote so much. I don't have the whole quote, but part of it was a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor. And he said this, unbelief is something that is deeper than reason or instinct. Oh, I didn't even know we had slides today. Fantastic. Yeah. It says that right there. Unbelief is something that is deeper than reason or instinct. Let me show you how this text absolutely proves that that's true. That even the most brilliant, the most for the most educated, unbelief, no matter the evidence, is sometimes, sometimes stronger than reason. So the temple officers say, no one has ever spoken like this man. And it just, you, did you see in the passage, it just sets the religious leaders off, right? So their first response to the temple officers, to the temple guards is, oh, so you're believing lies now? Like, oh, you're being deceived, you're, you're believing lies? Which by the way, they weren't. They weren't believing lies. They were the ones that were seeing it clearly that there's, God is doing something here, something's going on here, but they couldn't see it because their unbelief had become so deeply rooted in them when the temple guards were like, listen, no one's ever spoke like this guy. They, they accused them of being deceived. They accused them of being deceived. Then as if to prove their point that Jesus is a liar and that they're being deceived, they say, listen, not, not one of the authorities, not one of the Pharisees, meaning the chief priests, the, the head of Israel, not, none of us, none of us who lead Israel religiously have believed in Jesus Christ. But, but, again, but then again, that's not true either, is it? That's also not true. Their unbelief had covered that because do you remember Nicodemus and John 3? 
Nicodemus is in this passage, but he first came onto the scene in John 3. And when he comes to Jesus, he's one of the rulers. He says this in John 3, 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, not I, right? We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So I don't know that Nicodemus is ready to call him the Messiah there, right? But he knows that this guy has to be from God. He has to be sent by God, which is what Jesus is claiming. I am sent by God. Nicodemus confirms right here for us that, that many of the religious leaders actually believed that Jesus was sent from God, whether they would say it or not, whether they were too scared to say it or not. In John 12, it'll say that many of the religious leaders believed. Not some of them, many of the religious leaders believed. But again, they wouldn't speak up on Christ's behalf. So again, I want you to see, these men are wrong. They are now surrounded by people who secretly believe in Jesus, but are too afraid to speak up. But their unbelief has so blinded them that they can't see what's going on right around them. But then their anger turns. I, I just think this is a moment when their, their, their anger turns and their unbelief goes from just unbelief to unreasonableness and even venom. Did you, I don't know if you caught it, but did you see them share just absolute scorn for the people of Jerusalem. They say, hey, these crowds, these crowds don't know the law and they're accursed. Do you know who they're talking about? Their people. All the people who aren't them, who aren't educated, right? They, and I, I was doing some research and some of the religious leaders at this time would call people like this, people of the land. And people of the land were people who they thought didn't know enough. By the way, this could be people that actually know the law backwards and forwards, but haven't been to the same rabbis that they have, haven't been through the, through the same training as they have. So they would call even those people, people of the land. This is, a, this is a thing of scorn. They're looking down on their own people. You know, the people they're supposed to lead and be examples of? This is them looking down on their entire nation because they don't know what to do about Jesus. And then I think it even gets worse. The Nicodemus enters the scene again from John 3. He's back in the scene. And again, I think what Nicodemus here tries to do is just interject basic reason. Isn't that what he's doing? He's just interjecting basic reason. And he says, um, doesn't our law state, and here I don't think he's talking about the Mosaic law. He's just talking about the law of the land, like certainly Roman law. He's saying, doesn't, doesn't our, raw, our law state that we would bring this man in and at least ask him questions and let him answer for himself so we can try to get to the bottom of this? Isn't that what the law says to do? This isn't ridiculous, right? This is the law. This is basic law. This is what these guys do. But how did the, these religious leaders respond? Did it seem that, to you that they responded with reason? No, they said, just venomous. Oh, are you, are you from Galilee too? Right? Meaning, are, are you secretly behind Jesus too? Do you come from the same place he does? And then, and then they go off the rails and say, no prophet. We all know that no prophet comes out of Galilee. He can't be a prophet because he came out of Galilee. Which, do you know that that's absolutely not true either? Jonah came from the area of Galilee. There, Nahum, a couple other prophets came from the area around Galilee. So either one of two things, either they're, they're exaggerating or excluding certain information to make their point sound better, which leaders tend to do, right? Have you ever heard a leader like exaggerate to the point of, of just a flat out lie to try to make their point stronger? So they're exaggerating to the point they're just outright lying to make their point better, or they've, they're so lost to their unbelief, they're so lost to their unreasonableness that they're, they're just not even quoting scripture, they're not even seeing scripture straight. Their unbelief has become more important than even what they should know, at least, is true. 
The people that are to teach all of Israel. The people that are supposed to be the examples to the people and the go-betweens between God and the people only seem to have contempt because their unbelief has become so deeply rooted in them. They're gripping it so tightly. It's just their unbelief at this moment is keeping, in the, keeping them in the darkness, and that's tragic. Yet around these men of unbelief, there are those like Nicodemus who either believe or who will believe, but they're just not brave enough to say it yet. So Scripture's constantly hard on the religious leaders, and they should be. They're supposed to be the ones leading Israel to the Lord, and they're leading them into darkness. But even in here, there's light because some of them do believe. Some of them are coming around because when the truth is proclaimed, church, some will reject it. Some will misunderstand it. Some will make excuses, but some will believe. Some will believe. Listen, church, what, what I want you to get out of this today is I really want you to wrap your heart and your mind around is that Jesus came to give you life, not just salvation. Salvation is so important, no matter for an eternity, but when, it, when he says it came to give you life, it is salvation, but it's more than salvation. God wants to have you life. Later in John, he'll say, give you life and give it to you abundantly. Like Jesus says, I want my joy to be in you so that your joy will be full in John 15. This is the life that he wanted. Not that our lives will be perfect and always happy, but that no matter what comes, we'll have life in Christ. So that through him and through the Holy Spirit that, that comes to live inside of you, this spring of water, this well would well up inside of you and continually feed you and give you what you need now and for eternity. God wants to be with you. God wants to guide you. This is such a big deal. We talked about this in Life Group this week, and I've had this conversation with Ethan like nine times. Like it blows me away too. It's such a big deal that Jesus says later that it is to your advantage that I go away, that I go to heaven. Because when I do, the Holy Spirit's gonna come for you. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to the people he was actually with? Jesus that they adore, that they worship. It's to your advantage that I go. But this is what God teaches us, Christian. That we have the Holy Spirit with us and that's what we need to have life. And so I'm... There's lots of things that we need from the Lord, but, but, but for us to truly experience this life that Scripture is talking about, two things have to happen. One is you have to stop treating other things in this world like they are the things that are going to give you life, that they are the things that's going to make your life good or worth it or fulfilled. Your job, your reputation, your entertainment, your comfort, just being comfortable. Hear me, I say this one all the time, but I need you to hear it. Your kids, a relationship that you're in or that you long for, your hobbies, they are not the things that will give you true fulfillment. They are not the things that are gonna give you peace in this life. And listen, God wants you to have his peace. They are all poor reflections of your purpose, poor reflections of joy, poor reflections of the truth that is found through Christ by the Holy Spirit that's within you. Here's what we do, church. We, we try to find life in things that are just reflections of our creator. Even your kids, that's a hard one. Kids are so good, 
but they are a reflection of the goodness of our creator. They are not the creator. And anything else in your life, we are looking for God's creation to be the thing that makes us feel full, that makes us find peace, that that will find life in these things. They are not life. The creator is life, not his creation. The creation is meant to shout about who he is, point you to him, not be the thing that you chase to try to find fulfillment in your life. And that is what we all do. As a pastor, I have to so hard work on, even for me, that not being the thing that I chase, things in this world to be the thing that gives me life. It will let you down every time. Listen, your kids are going to let you down. They may even crush you at some point. Because you know why? Because they're sinful just like you. Just like at some point you probably crushed your parents. Your job can be taken away. Your money can be gone tomorrow. Your health, I mean, has there ever been a time in the history of our world where your health being on the brink of being taken away at any moment has ever been clearer? These things will never give you life. Pursue good things. Like, do good things. Enjoy your kids. Of course, you know what I'm saying. Nothing is more, more beautiful than your marriage or your kids or your family. Nothing, but they aren't the creator. This is why scripture tells us in places all over the place, but places like Romans 12, that we have to constantly renew our minds. We have to constantly renew our minds with the truth of who God is, of what he has done for us, what he is promising to do, and who we are in him. Remind ourselves that we are the children of God with God's very own spirit within us, directing us, growing us, helping us, driving us forward, giving us everything that we need. Church, it's living for this, seeking this, studying this, praying over this, rooting our community, rooting our relationships in this, and worshiping God through this. That's how we find life. That's how the, the spring of life that it's talking about, that's a good thing, like welling up inside of you. Like this is, what, this is a good, healthy, joyful thing that it's meant to be. And it's, it's not only that, it's not only how we embrace life in this life, but how we actually have hope. Because this is promising life now and then for an eternity, right? Springing up into eternal life. This is the hope that we hold on to in this life. Because this life is too hard, we have to be able to hold on to the hope of eternity too. So if you're in here and you have believed, if you know and believe Jesus Christ as your Savior, out of your heart flows living water. Living water that God has been promising his people throughout the ages. And you are evidence. You are the people that he was promising all the way back then. That's amazing. Three, four, five thousand years ago, God was promising that his people would have what you have and what I have right now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So today I just want you to ask yourself, where am I looking in the wrong places to find my life? To find life, to find peace, to find hope, to find joy. Where can you refocus on the living water within you? And churches, I say all the time, don't you dare let this be another thing that just makes you feel condemned and that you're not good enough. Too often Christians just feel like they're not good enough and just are weighed down by that. Yes, your sin matters. Yes, God does not like your sin. Yes, God is against sin and against evil and against selfishness. But the truth of the gospel is any of those things we bring to the cross boldly and with confidence, right? We approach the throne with confidence and we lay those down and we ask for forgiveness and we repent. Again, repent just means to turn away. We turn away back to the Lord. Do you know why? So that God will give you life in him. This is what will set you free. This is what will make you feel whole, turning away to him and letting the spring of life well up inside of you that you might know Jesus Christ more. That's why the whole series, the whole book is about this, to know and believe so that you might walk in the truth of this. 
So the first thing we need to, need to see and pursue to have life is to pursue Jesus Christ and believe that he is life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly and lastly for today, we must be committed enough. We must be brave enough. We must trust Christ enough to tell others about how they can have life. Church, this is how it's described. For people who don't believe, they are dead. And that's pointing towards eternal life, that when it comes to eternal life, they have separation from God forever and hell. They are dead. They are not alive. But church, we have the thing that brings life. And hear me, I, I know, I know that we're not all just natural evangelists. That's not what we're talking about. We're not all gifted to stand up here and preach and teach. I, I know that, and that's okay. But, but all of us, all of us who believe know exactly where and who gives life. And we all know what it means for those who don't find life in Christ. Church, as, as we learn to re-enter the neighborhood again post-COVID, as, as I've said before, as, as we re-enter the neighborhood, we know that there's so many great things about this neighborhood. Like We've seen them. There's a lot of beauty here, but there's also so much darkness, so much dark. You talk to any neighbor that lives in the neighborhood, they will quickly point out the good things in the neighborhood, but then they'll pretty quickly get to how much darkness is in the neighborhood and abuse and hurt and pain and generational poverty and all of this just darkness that just overwhelms at certain, at certain points. And so we have to stop thinking that it's someone else that's going to go and open their mouth and share the truth. We have, to, we have to get out of our minds that it's someone, it's someone else's job to go seek and save the lost. That, that someone else, yeah, someone else can give their time. Someone else can give their gifts. Someone else can give their resources to, to go and do the work that needs to be done right across the street. Listen, Tom Watkins isn't just simply the place where our church is trying to go and do good things. That's not what we, we don't want to go and just do good things. As far as we know, I'll say this one more time, as far as we know, I'm not saying this is true, but as far as we know, we are the only or virtually the only gospel-centered presence that is consistently speaking into the gospel there other than Christians who live in the neighborhood. TJ and I literally had a neighbor say that to us. He said, we need people like you. There's not people speaking the gospel consistently in this neighborhood that care about this neighborhood. We need people like you to come and do this. Praise God for you. Right, this is a neighbor that lived in the, neighbor, in the neighborhood. This is a mission, as I said at the beginning, this is a mission field church. This is a place that is in so much desperate need of the harvest. If we don't go, if we don't share, if we don't seek to love who God so obviously loves in his scripture, the needy, the poor, the broken, the lost, and those enslaved to the darkness, who's gonna go? Who's, who's gonna go? No one else is going. Who else, who else is gonna go? Church, we have the thing. We have the thing that pierces that darkness. We know the one that satisfies the weary soul. Church, we worship the one who gives life that will well up inside of people now and for an eternity. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, church. And listen, hear me. Don't leave it to someone else. Don't leave it to someone else. Again, in your circles, in your life, and then as a church family, let's go into Tom Watkins' neighborhood and be committed to the one who gives life to dead, parched souls.
There are dead, parched souls, and Jesus Christ will give them life. How beautiful are the feet of those who go and proclaim the gospel, and how are they going to believe if no one goes to tell them? Church, we can tell them. We can go. We can have those beautiful feet. So church, find your life in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and then together, let's go help others find life in him too. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this unbelievably beautiful day to worship you with this family we call Freshwater. God, we are so thankful that you came, Jesus, that you came and you died on that cross to be that sacrifice for us, to pay the penalty, to pay the debt that we could never pay back to you, God, because we have sinned far too much. But Jesus, you went to the cross so that your blood could cover our debt, could cover our sin, could cover our shame. Jesus, help us to never get tired of that truth. But God, I think we need help today. I think for a lot of us in this room, walking in the truth that you, that God, that you are a spring of life, that you're welling up inside of us now and into eternal life, that you, that you have given us life through your Holy Spirit, that we might walk in it abundantly, is just so hard to grasp. And so God, I pray you be with all of us, but I, I pray specifically for the exhausted, the wore out, the depressed, the hurting, the ones who it's just felt too long since they felt life, since they felt peace and joy. God, I pray you be with them today and remind them of who you are. But God, if they're a believer today, more importantly, who they are in you because of who you are. God, it's so easy to worship creation instead of you. But God, I pray you'd help us all to just, our hearts would rise up to worship you and you alone. And through that, we would find life and peace, the life and peace that you promised to us. And God, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would grab a hold of their heart, God, that you would save them, that you would redeem them, and that you would use people in this room, people who love you, to lead them to you so they might know the truth of what it is to worship you, to know you, to be forgiven, and to find this life and peace. God, thank you so, so much for this time in, in Williams today. Thank you so much for providing this space for us. I pray that, that you would use it, that it would not just be a space, but you would use it for your glory and for the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.